how's business? Uh, it's good. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. This year, we've actually been very active. You know, whenever March kind of rolled around, we uh, we thought we were going to probably be less active, very conservative from an, a, a new investment standpoint. And, you know, it's kind of the product of we just happened to come across a lot of interesting entrepreneurs and founders during this time, um, you know, and then others that have had success selling in this type of market or, you know, just have had to, to really show the ability to, to pivot and to, to still, you know, even if they switch up their sales models, they've still been able to show great traction, you know, so telling uh, of CEOs and their tenacity, but yeah, just in general, it's, it's going well, things have been super busy throughout this entire time. So when you say you've been finding other companies that have been successful in this type of market or individuals that have been successful in this type of market, what kind of comparable markets are you referring to? I, you know, I can't think of anything. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I mean, there's certain products that, that have been used more often. Like, obviously, you think of, you know, we're, we're not an investor in Zoom, but you think about all the, the uh, collaboration technologies, mm. um, Zoom, Slack, those type of things that have really taken off. You know, there's a company in town, and, and again, we're not an investor, but just to, to help paint the example, it's like RV Share is a company that just raised a, a ton of money here in Austin. It's because, you know, people can't really travel these days, uh, at least by airport, or at least, you know, flights are, are, are way down and, and um, people traveling that way. But people are still trying to go on vacations and renting an RV has become pretty popular these days. So it's like, you know, those are a couple of examples of businesses that have really benefited from the pandemic for us you know it, it i mean it's certainly been a mixed bag like one of our companies aventus and that's one that i'm, I'm on the board of they've uh you know things have gone pretty well for them because they're a, a compliance software for um trading for for financial services firms that, that helps monitor uh trading activity and, and make sure that it's you know within regulation and there's just been you know markets have been pretty volatile um there's been you know increased need for regulating of trade activities. And so that company's done well, but those are some examples of, uh, yeah, certain technologies, you know, have, have done really well. And then other companies haven't done as well. You know, if it's, it's a tough sales environment these days that, you know, companies have, if their revenues aren't really coming in, you know, they're looking at their expense categories and having to justify every expense line item. And so, you know, if, product come across, comes across as more of a nice to have versus a need to have. It's um, easier to cut that from your, your expenses. And, and so you churn or it's um, you just don't have that same compelling reason why you need to purchase that software today versus maybe we purchase it in Q1 21 or 22 once things kind of shake out and the dust settles. So, you know, you kind of have in, in these markets, you, you kind of have the, the, the winners uh, that have been successful with, you know, timing is timing is everything and have been really lucky. And then you have certain ones that have been pretty unlucky that, you know, it's a, it's a great product. It's just kind of lost a little bit of its um, mm. urgency to be purchased from, from some of its customers. That makes sense. That makes sense. So, I mean, I guess, Maybe this is too broad of a question, but how are venture capitalists thinking about this type, this pandemic, this moment right now? Because here's what's going through my head, right? So a venture capital investment is like a longer term investment. It's not like something you're going to, it's not like you're buying a house and flipping it. You're going to, you're going to be affected by not just the current state of the market, but how it recovers from here and like what happens when things go back to normal. Are you investing differently at, at in those long-term plays too? 
Do you feel that way? Or is it just more about right now reinvesting into your existing portfolio and making sure that they're able to weather the storm? Um, I mean, it's both. It's whenever everything happened in March, um, you know, we had to look at, at our companies and, you know, make sure that like some of them, they needed to go out for fundraising. And, you know, the original plan was go out for fundraising in Q2, Q3 of 2020. And so with all of this happening, the the market dynamics have changed. And, and so we had, you know, conversations with a lot of our companies that look, we need to, you know, figure out how to, how to make cash last longer. You know, maybe we, we need to be a little bit, um, you know, we need to be more conservative about what we're expecting in terms of sales. And so where does that put our cash runway and what changes mm. do we make? Maybe we do need to push out some of the hires that we were talking about. You know, maybe we need to change our expense structure. We, we had a lot that, you know, we're, some were able to get out of their leases and, and certain things like that because we, uh, yeah, we did have to take a, a very hard look when all this started at our portfolio and, and make sure that we could weather the storm and certain ones, you know, it's, you know, we, we were able to, you know, fill the gap with, with cash needs, whether, you know, whether it was debt or, or um, you know, some insider funding. Um, so that certainly took place. And then whenever we're looking at kind of the, the other side of that question, whenever we're looking at new investments, I mean, there's certain technologies that have really taken off that, you know, you, you got to ask yourself like, okay, maybe, Things are going really well right now, but after the pandemic, is this where the market's going to be or is the market going to pull back? And, you know, maybe it's, you know, you're not going to do every, every meeting isn't going to happen via Zoom once all this is done. And so, um, you know, the, just as an example, so the, the world's going to recede a little bit from this, you know, incredibly virtual world that we're in right now. And so how do we think that shakes out? And so, yeah, I mean, you're, you're certainly, we're investors for the long term. So you kind of want to predict like, okay, well, you know, we think that this product, even if the market pulls back, there's still a, a very broad need. And, you know, the fact that all of this has happened, it's accelerated people's familiarity and, and usage of some of these digital tools. So maybe the market's actually emerged a lot quicker. So you're certainly, you want to consider, yeah, once everything shakes out, you know, what's the the market for a product like this. But anytime we're looking at, at companies that have general ties to the macroeconomic landscape, and of course we did not anticipate this pandemic, but right. you know, <laughs> we're in a company Homeward, which has done really well. They're in the real estate um, space. They have a platform that basically allows people that, you know, you have your first home and you want to upgrade. Now you have a family, you're growing, you want to upgrade to a bigger house, but a lot of your equity, a lot of, you know, what you would use as your down payment for the new house is tied up in your current house. So Homeward allows you to purchase that new house prior to selling the one that you have. And so we kind of facilitate that whole process. And by being involved in, in the both the purchase of the new home and the sale of the old home, you know, you can be a, a part of a lot of the different pieces of the real estate process. Um, but that one's tied to, you know, real estate cycles and, and you know, you could be caught in a situation where you have expensive inventory and, and then um, the market softens on that. And we don't really, you know, the, the plus to that model is you're really not in a, the, there's always an out from any type of inventory that we have, it's going to be resold to the customer at a predetermined price. And so we don't take the same type of inventory risk that maybe some of those instant buyers take um, like the open doors and, and such of the world. Mm -hmm. And so, 
but but that's just to paint an example that whenever you're you're looking at investment like you know homeward attached to the real estate cycles like what does that mean for us if there is a downturn you know we don't anticipate that one necessarily but you still need to look at kind of different scenario planning whenever you're making an investment so long way of answering the question on whenever we're investing in companies now it's you know you, you look at the environment today but then you, you look at how that environment will change and then another answer to, to what you were asking is just looking at you know whenever we're looking at investing in companies and even like our existing portfolio usually you kind of have like there's a couple of milestones that you want to hit from whenever we invest in a company there's a couple goalposts that they kind of need to hit so that they can raise that next round of funding. Like our fund, you know, we're $105 million fund, usually writing one to three, one and a half to $4 million checks um, in seed and series A rounds. And, you know, you, you need those companies. There's kind of general buckets of, you want them to get to, you know, certain customer level adoption, certain financial um, metrics from revenue, um, certain level of product development kind of things that that they need to do with the capital that we invest so that they could raise a good next stage, next round of funding from a different pool of investors. And so that's something that you have to think about during the pandemic of is like, okay, well, we expected sales to kind of, you know, go from 500,000 when in a run rate when we invest to, you know, 2 million or, or you know, one to 2 million in the next 18 to 24 months. And so maybe it's going to be a tougher sales environment. And so how are we thinking about like the runway that the company needs to get through to be able to achieve these milestones is always, you know, the scenario planning that you're doing. Like if they make sure that whenever you're funding a company that there is cushion, um, you know, based on kind of the, the plans that you're, uh, you're talking about. Hmm. Okay. That makes sense. Thank you for that. I was wanted to make sure that we got the uh, obligatory COVID questions out of the way because I have so many questions for you about venture capital. It's something that I don't know a ton about, but I, I like kind of know what it is. So I'm, I'm going to ask you to briefly, just for, for the unacquainted and to make sure I'm not totally off base here, why don't you just, can you just quickly describe or define venture capital for maybe any newer entrepreneurs who haven't heard of it before? Uh, just, just give me 101, what is VC? Sure. Um, so venture capital is investors that invest in um, early stage companies. So it's, we're actually giving cash to companies that, you know, generally they have some initial level of product market fit, some initial level of runway. And so we'll, you're gonna have a valuation for your company and we'll invest, you know, for 20%, let's say of your company, we might write a check for one to $2 million. And so now instead of, you know, the founders having 100% of the company, they, um, we end up investing and it's taking an equity position. So it's in the general category of private equity, but we would invest, you know, a couple million bucks. And now we would own a piece of that company. And in return, you know, you get cash, but then you also get the expertise that, you know, we've been through this playbook several times, at least from growing and building organizations. And so we'll end up, you know, we'll, help the company scale, help the company with any kind of recruiting needs to help build out the team. Um, you know, it can also mean customer introductions. It, it, it can mean just kind of general help with strategy, stuff along those lines. I mean, I, I probably the simplest answer for what is VC is kind of like if you watch Shark Tank, it, that's kind of quasi what it is. It, it's Those are kind of what you would think of if you think about the different funding sources for a company over time. So, you know, it's like if I had a good idea or an idea that 
I wanted to start a business, you know, if I, you know, if I work for a company in the HR department and I think that there's something that's not working about the HR software tools that we've been using today, or, you know, there's just a, a really interesting market that, that I see that there could, you know, emerging market that, that could be there, you know, what unique insight I have, but maybe I start and, and want to spin off and start my own company. And usually you're going to use your own capital to kind of formulate the idea, get things going. But at the same time, you might raise some money from, uh, from friends and family, from other people that, you know, you know, well, that also can attest to it being a problem that really needs a solution and the solution that you're selling or your idea is based around really makes sense. And so that's kind of your friends and family uh, is usually the first round that, that people raise. Um, and, you know, that's probably sub 250,000 or 250,000 and less. Once you kind of have a product built and maybe you're or getting close to that and really want to start trying to get some initial customers, you know, maybe you'll, you'll raise like a true angel round and, you know, all the rounds kind of are coming up with different names these days, but maybe that's in the pre-seed category of like 250 to 500,000 is kind of where the, the angel investors are going to play. And then as the company grows, you know, usually you can either grow kind of one of two ways to really simplify things is you can either grow organically. So as you start to get a customer, that customer's, you know, obviously paying you a certain amount, and then you can use that money to reinvest in the product and then maybe get another customer and then use that money to reinvest and get another customer. But, you know, you're, you're growing at a slower growth rate each year if you're growing organically, but it's a great way to build a business because usually the founders will end up with a hundred percent ownership in that instance. You know, another way to grow is you, you raise capital. And so you give up some of your company in order to do so. But the idea is that instead of growing 10% a year, maybe you're growing 200% a year, you know, it's, it's, you're going to own less of a much bigger pie over time is kind of the idea. And so you want to, raise capital so that you can aggressively go after a market and an opportunity. And, um, you know, as you do so, you end up raising more and more capital. And, you you know, you think about any of the, the tech companies that have gone public, you know, like the Facebooks or the Ubers or, you know, kind of your, your name brand companies. And they all raised, you know, a lot of the companies that our parents didn't go up with, but yet are dominate, you know, the Fortune 100 these days are companies that took VC funding and that's how they were able to grow so aggressively so quickly and become so dominant is because they had a ton of money to go after these markets and, and everything. And so, yeah, the venture capital kind of fits in the, the early stage of that. Like, you know, if you think about Facebook, they took money early on, um, Uber's with Uber with, with benchmark and stuff. It's, um, you know, you're going to take money as you're growing and, and, then usually there's kind of like a couple of different outcomes for, for companies. It's as you keep growing and you've, you've taken on venture capital to go after the goals that you're, you're setting out for. And, and as you're accomplishing those, maybe you need to raise more money to go after more markets or, or so be it, you know, and, and one scenario you may end up getting acquired by a company you think of, of like Instagram, for instance, like Facebook acquired that once it got to a certain level and it's turned out to be an incredible acquisition from, from Facebook. And so, you know, you can build a product and you kind of, as we're investing in companies, we're always usually thinking about like, what's, what's an exit outcome. Like whenever we invest in companies, it's usually for a, your investment horizon is like, okay, in the next kind of five to seven years or so, what do we think an outcome for something like this would be? 
And so who are the potential acquirers that would be out there who, you know, for that HR. Is that your job? Like, are you the person who thinks about like, what, what's the potential for this exit, for the exit strategy of this firm? Like, is that what you do as an investor? Yeah. Yeah. Me and, you know, the, the founder obviously should have a perspective on that. Like, you know, if it's Mm -hmm. starting with like an HR example, like, you know, as you grow this product, maybe it makes sense to get acquired by, um, you, you want to look at the, who could potentially get a ton of value for uh, for acquiring a company like this. And then do they usually acquire companies? Like what is kind of the sentiment of the industry in general? Do they usually buy third-party companies like this or do they try and build it themselves? But, you know, acquisitions are one route that happens with startups. And then if the company's very successful, um, IPOs, uh, public offerings is really usually, I mean, if there's a public offering, that's, really the the company doing incredibly well for the most part um and so that's that's usually a goal but you know there there can be a ton of success beneath that as well but to to answer your question so my role at at the firm so we're you know looking for companies to invest in probably a third of my time is spent you know meeting with founders understanding what business that that you know what what their business is that they're going after the market opportunity um but trying to to meet with folks and, and source opportunities find uh, see if I can find interesting companies for us to invest in. And then the other third of my time is really um, spent analyzing those companies and making sure that, you know, it really does make sense for us to invest in. So yeah, competitive landscape is one of them, but yeah, market opportunity. How, how big do we think a market is for something like this? What is the potential university universe of, of acquirers for something like this is, is certainly within that. And, you know, what success have they had to date? What strategies have they tried? Have they seen success with that maybe we should double down on whenever we we invest our capital? All things to think about. And then the last third of my time is spent once we actually make the investments, really uh, working with the companies and, and trying to tackle our goals. How can I be helpful? How can wh- what gaps does the company have that that we need to help fill for maybe a leadership perspective or help them with strategy? My background is just. It's investment banking and commercial banking from, you know, I was out in the, the Bay Area for, for a decade and by finance is my background kind of through and through. Um, and so my natural place to help out companies is really kind of help fill that CFO type role initially. Like usually when we're investing, they don't have a CFO yet. And so it's, you know, help the companies with. You know, it's not like you have some sales, but, you know, here's kind of the metrics that we should be tracking and the operational metrics that that kind of help you understand if you're going after the right customer profiles and if we're we're getting the right return on, on those profiles. So that's kind of my natural way to initially help. And then from there, it's, you know, just help the companies work through work through their strategy on, on hitting their goals and, and really try and just be as value add as we can while still investing in, in entrepreneurs that um, that can run the day to day. Like we don't want to in your or in the weeds on, on really running the business. And you're obviously going to know more, the founder is going to know more about that particular industry than we ever will. But, you know, we have seen companies grow and, and you know, there's certain patterns to follow and, and, um, so we can help on that side. It's such a cool job. Like it's, it uses so much analysis and you get to really be in there with a lot of cool companies. I'm, I'm sure a lot of listeners would be really interested to know how someone pursues a career like that. A, do you have any advice? And B, what does the typical track look like? 
I've never even heard of someone trying to achieve, uh, you know, a career like yours. So I'd love to hear from you. Sure. Um, so my path is easiest to speak of. Uh, it took me a while to kind of get here. So, so I started my career in investment banking out in the Bay area, like I mentioned, and, uh, you know, it's, it's anybody that's, you know, kind of interested in finance, you know, going accounting, going investment banking is certainly good to kind of build your chops on, on the finance side of things. The thing about investment banking is it's very transactional. It's, you know, it's all about making the deal and then it's on to the next one. So in investment banking, you mm -hmm. know, like there's sales side and buy side advisory stuff, but you're helping companies um, either sell themselves or you're helping a company acquire, uh, acquire somebody else on the, on the buy side. And so it's very transactional once, you know, for example, once Facebook acquired Instagram, that deal is done, then on to the next one. Um, and so my goal after that was like, you know, I, I like the art of the deal, but I, uh, and not to use that phrase, but I like that. <laughs> I was um, thinking that was bold. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's not, that's not my intention there. But uh, I like that aspect of it. But it's it's very transactional, and, and I wanted to be much more involved with the companies. You know, you spend so much time with them uh, whenever you're you're working with them to understand kind of the, the health of the organization. And then once the deal's done, it's like might as well forget all about that and onto something else. And so I wanted to get much more involved with companies, and so I transitioned from investment banking to uh, to commercial banking. In commercial banking, you know, you're still working with the companies, and you're you're helping them raise capital in the form of debt but it's, you're still not as involved with the strategy and, and, and really helping them and getting in the weeds with them at times. And so my goal was to get into venture capital. And, and so I ended up going to a business school is one route that folks can go. Um, I came to, to McCombs in 2016 and, and there's actually a pretty good program that, that McCombs has called Venture Fellows where it, uh, it gives the opportunity um, for MBA candidates to intern at, at different venture capital firms around town. And, and there's some other schools that do similar programs, but McCombs does it in Austin and it's, it works really well. And so kind of the thing is once you get your foot in the door in venture capital, you just got to hustle your way into trying to find an opportunity because there's just not a whole lot of them. Like, like in Austin, there's kind of four funds that are in the $100 million range and a couple funds that are you know smaller than that. But there's just not a whole lot of funds here in town and all of them have less than a 10-person headcount. And so maybe each one of them, you know, usually the hiring cycles are when you raise a new fund, that's whenever you can bring on additional headcount, but maybe that's going to be one or two people. It'll still be pretty minimal. And you're raising a fund uh, once every three or four years. And so kind of, if you think about the cycle, like maybe there's two hires in, in VC a year in Austin and Austin's got, you know, a top 10 uh, venture capital market. And then there's two hires a, a year, you know, at a certain level, it's just, there's not a whole lot of opportunity. And so the whole thing is like, once you have your foot in the door, you got to hustle your way and network your way. Um, oh my gosh. If, if you're given a shot, you just got to, you know, really make the most of it. And so my thing was like, you know, I was kind of given some internships several years ago and it wasn't like there was necessarily a, a budget allocation to hire somebody at my level, but it's, you got to just try and make yourself as, as indispensable as possible. Um, and so fortunately things, things worked out for me. And, and, you know, I think for a lot of folks, if this is really what you're targeting, it can certainly work out for you too. You just got to like really pound the pavement. So bringing it back one route is kind of, yeah, go the investment banking route. 
get your MBA, and then, you know, you can kind of find a way into private equity or venture capital. And, you know, private equity is just the broader world of, of you know, investing in companies for equity ownership. But a lot of times that can actually mean like um, acquiring majority ownership whenever you're doing it, where venture capital, it's usually you're investing for a minority ownership position. And so that's one route, investment banking, MBA, get into it. Another route is like to really get some solid operational experience. So, I mean, maybe you, you had started your own company out of, out of undergrad and, you know, worked your way and, and built that up and, and, you know, maybe you had a, a decent exit there and, you know, you'll end up seeing like a lot of founders at, at venture capital firms. Um, they were previously CEOs at uh, companies prior, they, you know, founders and CEOs that that's kind of the other path is, you know, yeah, you grow, grow your company. You really know the ins and outs of, and trials and tribulations of, of growing that company and the successes and failures that you've had. And then now you want to advise other companies and you, you know, you've really been in that role. And so there is some valuable feedback that you'll have based on, you know, your success or failure in a particular setting. And, you know, you can give the advice that you learned on that setting to a new, uh, an entrepreneur that you're investing in. So there's that knowledge skill set that, that folks will have from the investment community. And then there's also just like, once you've seen a ton of companies and a ton of different business models and stuff that's worked and stuff that hasn't worked, you know, you can start to recommend like, at least what I've seen work before is, um, you know, going after this sales strategy for this size customer, because it's a, it's a lower paying customer that, that you don't want to dedicate a full inside sales force to go after, for instance. I mean, the whole thing that, that you're doing is once you're on the VC side of things, you're really just trying to help the companies with strategy. And so, you know, your role is like really sitting on that board and working with the CEOs and working with the different department heads on, on helping them do helping them do their jobs and any advice that you can, you can do to, to help them or, you know, be, be as, as value add to them as possible. Once you get to the private equity world, it's much more of kind of a, a financial analysis uh, type mm. tool. Why investment banking makes sense for, for going into that type of job is because it's very much like, you know, this company's growing at this pace every year and cash flows at this. We think we could optimize expenses in this range and, you know, if we invest in a couple of these areas, we think growth can kind of hit this new curve or this new slope. And then we could exit in five years for the, the same multiple, but, you know, revenues 2x, so 3x yep. or 4x. And so you, you can get a much better return. So, yeah, sorry, there's, there's a lot there. Yeah, it sounds like it's crazy competitive. If there's two open positions, roughly, I know you just, you know, gave it a round number there, but you know, there's two open positions a year, you really must have had to hustle to make yourself pretty indispensable during that internship if you wanted to, to secure that. And is that around the time when you started running your newsletter? If I'm, if I'm not mistaken? Yeah, yeah. So that's, um, yeah, I mean, that was the whole thing for me is like, I knew I wanted to get into venture capital. Um, that was what I went to business school for was the singular focus of getting into venture capital. And so my whole you know, I, I focused like all my time on, on making that, that the top priority. And so, um, as part of that, it's like, you know, you just need to network with folks and, and so that you're on their radar if they're thinking about bring. Mm -hmm. And so I was, you know, going to co getting coffee with a bunch of folks and, and really trying to pound the pavement from the networking side. But I was really racking my brain of like, how do I stay top of mind? for a lot of the folks that I'm networking with. And so I started that newsletter in business school. And so I do think it really helped get my job here at Live Oak um, because I'm in everybody's inbox once a week whenever I send it out. 
um, kind of the crazy part. It's a really is that, cool newsletter, by the way. Yeah, no, thank you. It's uh, the crazy part is it's kind of evolved into a beast of its own. Like initially, it was just a, a tool to kind of help me get a get a job in venture capital, but now it's like <laughs> you know six thousand plus people are on it, and um, it's really taken off. And I'm doing it in three different markets, and so it, it's and it's still super valuable as a networking tool for me. I mean, I, I really like it because a lot of people that I meet with, you know, surprisingly enough, they. they might actually get it and, and it kind of is a an easy icebreaker to, to getting to know people and actually chatting with them um is one hand and another thing it always you know it's it keeps me super informed because i have to put it together each week but yeah it's kind of crazy just how how it has evolved because now it's like i can't stop it you know for better or worse everybody kind of tells me like i love it you can never stop this thing and it's like that's awesome i love that you get so much value out of it <laughs> It'll be like I set it out on Sundays and it's like, oh, shit, like shoot this uh, a particular Sunday. I hadn't gotten around to doing it during the week. And so it's like, you know, 10 p.m. on Sunday night. It's like, all right, got to buckle down and get this thing done. Um, you gave yourself a never ending homework assignment. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. It's, it's um, really cool, though. I think it's a really smart move to to keep people informed. Like it's such a it's such a shame that more, more people don't try and find ways to stay top of mind with people. I feel like that's it's very wise of you to to leverage the contacts that you've been making in that way. It's uh yeah. maybe not leverage, but that was the concept. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, thank you. It'll uh I don't know, am I going to be like 80 year old 80 80 years old one day still putting it together possibly. So I'm going to have I'm having a baby here. Uh we're having a baby in the next 2 months and uh, I've had people tell me like, "Well, you're still going to do the newsletter, right?" <laughs> uh, so, and I've gotten pretty used to like, I, I know the cycles of putting it together and it's not, it doesn't require a, a ton of brain power anymore. So, um, but that's the plan. It's, uh, it's three years in running and I've never missed a week. So kind of, is, wow. even if I could, even if, you know, obviously I think I could miss a week and it'd be fine, but it's just kind of a, I think I just kind of have a work ethic, personal goal now that I would just feel way too, way too guilty if I ever missed a week. So the centerpiece of your newsletter is like deal highlights, right? It's like funding rounds and, and that kind of thing. Uh, and it's all in Austin. You have one for Houston and is, is it San Antonio or Dallas is the other one? Dallas, yeah. Is there really like, I can't believe how much there is every single week. Austin must be growing like crazy in, in, in tech, right? Is, is my intuition correct there? Yeah, so you're right. So the newsletter is, um, I mean, it's a really great way to keep a pulse on what's actually happening in Austin. So every week there's a ton of new companies that are getting funded, a ton of companies that might be getting acquired. And I guess on that that note, if a company's getting funded, raising capital, usually they're hiring a bunch of people. And so, you know, for anybody that's looking for a job and they want to get an early stage tech, always look for companies that have just raised new rounds because now you have more capital to bring headcount on. Um, but Sign up to Mason's newsletter. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. Thank you. Uh, but it's always yeah, it's a good just to plug it a little bit more. It's um, it's a good way to really keep a pulse on what's going on here um, across funding rounds, acquisitions, um, big hires that companies are making, other just big headlines in general. Uh, yeah. So the question was, so Austin, yeah, I mean, there's a ton. If you if you just kind of read it each week, there's a ton that happens each week. Um, I mean, right prior to the pandemic, it was one of the you know top three new cities that people are moving to um, top in terms of, of yeah, new people coming in, in terms of growth, um, you know, a ton of 
big and exciting companies that have been founded in in Austin that are really making waves in, in the headlines now. Um, and then after the pandemic, I mean, I think things have only expedited. It's like, you know, kind of your big urban, uh, traditional urban tech hubs like um, Silicon Valley and, and New York are always going to have a ton of activity. But I think a lot of folks have, have realized that they don't necessarily need to be located in San Francisco to build a successful company. And it can mm-hmm. be to, to build something in, in Texas and in Austin. And there's still the, the infrastructure in terms of capital, in terms of talent, in terms of, you know, customers, acquirers, all that stuff can still be found in Austin. And, and then you get, you know, cheaper cost of living. So you've seen a ton of activity and a ton of companies relocating their their companies in Austin um, after the pandemic. But that was a trend that was persistent prior as well. So I have a few questions for you kind of from the perspective of entrepreneurs, like things that they can do in order to make themselves more palatable to investors, should they be seeking VC round either now or at a later date? Um, and some of these questions may be too broad, so you can feel free to be like, Max, that doesn't make sense. But when you're looking for a company to invest with, is there like a checkbox of things that you're looking for? Like I've been in pitch competitions when they're telling you, telling me to do things like make sure you cover your defensibility, cover the team, cover X, Y, Z. Like, are there specific things that are more important than, than anything else all the time? Or, or is it different in each case? Um, yeah, there's always categories that you want to hit. I mean, anytime a company's pitching us, usually there's, they have a pitch deck, you know, what's called the pitch deck that has, uh, basic elements. Every pitch deck is going to have basic elements to it. You know, you want to have, you know, what's the, what's the problem? What's the solution? Um, but then how big is that market is always something that we'll spend time on. Like, and, and we always uh, prefer folks to approach it from a bottoms up analysis, not from like, you know, we talked about an HR company, uh, in an example earlier, but you know, if a company that wants to sell an HR tech product and they think, okay, we can get 1% of total HR tech spend, which might be trillion dollars or something. And so 1%, we'd still have a wildly successful company, but that's just not a realistic way to look at it. Really. It's like, okay, we think that we can charge a hundred thousand dollars a year for each one of our customers. And we think there's X number of customers out there. And so the market size would be however many customers that we think this is applicable to uh, multiplied by what we think an average person would pay for it. And so that's what we prefer from a bottoms up market analysis, market sizing. And then they would give you like a percentage of that that they think that they can attain instead of a percentage of like total HR spent. Well, you get, so that's what gives you your TAM, uh, total address market. And then, yeah, I mean, you always think, okay, maybe we could get, if we're super successful, maybe we could get five to 10% of that market, kind of depending on how, how much of a white space, how open that market is. So, you know, generally we're kind of underwriting businesses. Do we think it's at least a, you know, a couple hundred million dollar market? If we can get 10%, we can build a $50 million business. Like that would be incredible. And so you kind of want to be able to think about things like that and then, so whenever you're thinking about the pitch deck, you have your problem, your solution, the market opportunity. And then, yeah, I mean, the team slide is always super important. It's like, you know, we'll always say first that it's the entrepreneur that you're backing. So understand the team and why they have a particular skill set to tackle this problem. Um, and then the other part is like, you know, the traction. Have you sold any customers today? What's your, you know, your financials look like? Just to help kind of validate, oh, you have sold customers and you've been able to generate this sales price per customer. And so that goes into the market sizing um, equation. And it can also show like, look, we're acquiring customers 
with these strategies, if we had more money, we would double down on these strategies. And, you know, we think we could get growth from X to Y if we do that. So you generally have those sections. And then, you know, there's always like the ask slide um, to understand what the, you know, the financing request is and then where, what are the use of funds for that request for us to invest you know, generally, you know, I can caveat everything that I would say, but generally we're looking for companies with initial uh, product market fit, which means that you have some initial customers that, that are paying for your solution to suggest that, you know, there really is a problem and the solution that you're providing really makes sense. And there are also customers in the market that you're going after, you know, some of the times you can kind of get some some sales for customers that might not be your target persona because there's, you know, if you're selling a, a corporate social responsibility platform and you got some sales to some nonprofits, but really you're trying to sell brands. Well, you know, you haven't necessarily established product market fit for the brands yet. You've established it at maybe a smaller market. And so we will uh, look at, at those aspects. So yeah, what I was saying is um, generally we, we, you know, want to have a couple of customers that suggest some product market fit. And so, you know, generally it's like the companies may have like 20 to 30 K in monthly revenue and probably upwards of like 200 to 300 K in monthly revenue. Kind of once you get beyond that, it probably, um, you could probably end up raising capital uh, generally multiples for software companies in our space. If you have beyond like 400 K in revenue, then in uh, monthly revenue, then it's just going to be, they're asking for too much of a valuation. Like we like to invest one to three million and still get 10% of a company, at least 10 to 20%, but in the double digits. Right. So yeah, it's always like, you know, who's the team. If it's a incredible team that, you know, has maybe had success building companies before, maybe you will invest pre-revenue, but if it's, you know, first time entrepreneur, really, you know, credible guy, but first time entrepreneur, um, you know, we might want a couple of data points around customer traction and then, sure. so it's kind of a sliding scale. Is defensibility like a legitimate concern? Is that something that you guys worry about a lot? Or it's, it's something that I yeah. hear a lot of paranoia about whenever people tell me about their ideas, like, oh, I, I'm afraid to tell, tell you what my idea is because I don't want anyone to steal it. But, you know, how, how serious is defensibility as a consideration for you when you're investing? Yeah, I mean, you, you want to have some technical or data moat that prevents somebody else from just completely copying what you're doing. But defensibility goes hand in hand with like kind of customer traction. Like, you know, mm. it, it, it's execution is a lot to it. Like if you can really execute in a market, that's what makes, that's what helps with the defensibility a little bit. Like, let me think of like a good way to say it, but I mean, there's always going to be the threat of like, well, why can't Amazon just do this? Well, it's like, yeah, I mean, sure. Amazon's got billions of dollars like of course they can just they can do anything <laughs> they can do anything and so it's like it, it's really trying to prove out and and get some traction and, and build out you know and target a space and, and build an interesting company because maybe these big guys yeah they could maybe do it themselves but maybe it would just make more sense for them to acquire you than to invest the amount of money and the amount of time to get their product up and running so um you know you do want to have defensibility but i think you know defensibility doesn't mean anything unless you have traction sure fair enough what uh what kinds of mistakes do a lot of entrepreneurs make when they're looking for investments yeah probably a couple of categories um 
You know, it's, it's, well, okay. So first off, just on the pitch deck, you know, the market sizing question, uh, market right. sizing thing is, is common. You know, we'll see folks just approach it in a way that doesn't really make sense. You know, some pitfalls the groups will have is just, you know, maybe you raise too much money early on. And so you give up too much of your company. You know, if you raise like, you know, a couple million bucks, whenever you don't really have product market fit, you might end up giving up majority ownership of your company or, or you know, still a significant piece. And so it's, you don't necessarily need to raise everything that you want. And, and I mean, also that that's assuming that it's easy enough to get that capital. But, um, you know, a lot of times we'll tell folks like, okay, well, you're trying to raise six, but you know, if we raise three, what if we try and prove out, you know, instead of proving out these seven different data points, what if we can really prove out these three points and really hammer it home with 3 million bucks. And then we can raise, you can raise a bigger round and then, Overall, you'll get diluted less than if you raise six at a less valuation early on. You're going to give up. Sure, that makes sense. Company, so it's being like strategic on the fundraising side of things, and then also it's just it's now that we have the capital, let's make sure that we're incredibly strategic about what we're doing with it. You know, like it's it's such a case by case scenario to answer a question like that, but it's like if you have a uh, a company that's that does a marketplace, like almost like an Uber, let's take Uber, and you want to raise, you know, 10 million bucks so that you can take your ride hailing company to, um, to these different markets. But maybe like for us, we would say that let's optimize in our current markets. And then, you know, we can expand um, very strategically into the, the next ones from there versus kind of trying to do it as a land grab, let's seed all these new markets at once because you don't really know what works and what doesn't. And you got to hit a certain amount of milestones in this round. And we got to prove enough out in this round so that we can raise that next round. And, you know, if you're not as strategic in, in some of the, the ways that you're thinking about the capital, then you might not have accomplished as much from, from proving things out for that next round. And so it's going to really make that next round be a tough raise at a increase in valuation or, or anything like that. So, you know, just being strategic about, about the plan and, you know, that also goes into like the financial forecast. Like, I mean, you could say that you're going to be a $2 billion company in four years, but like, you got to really, you know, if you're going to make extreme claims, like have some real methodology behind how you're going to do that. And so, yeah, probably things that, that entrepreneurs mistakes they'll make is just extreme claims without it's all about like in the pitch meetings you can have something on a deck that might be extreme you just got to be able to to talk through it and to talk like to have a, a thorough understanding of why you're, you're saying you're going to be able to do things and, and be able to explain it and so yeah maybe some of the extreme claims um sure issues yeah it's so interesting to hear you talk about this because i run you know a business that's nothing like the companies that you fund right i run like a pretty small it's like a commodity kind of business we just make websites for companies there's nothing like you know revolutionary about it in terms of like a, some proprietary software or anything like that but when i think about business and i think about growth i think about revenue funded growth and when we're having this conversation you're talking about you know you raise your seed round then you have to you know use that money to validate the growth further given a certain uh, excess input in, or given a secondary input or another round of funding um at what point does do you expect that a company can stand on its own two legs and 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 or is that never an expectation and that's just my my incorrect way of thinking about the situation yeah i mean there's 
different strokes for different folks. Um, it's like certain business models, you know, I guess we'll kind of call it like a lifestyle business. Like you don't need to raise venture capital. You don't need to be trying to aggressively go after a market. Like, I mean, if it's, if you have a, a good team and you know, the business is generating a couple million bucks in revenue and there's cash flow and you're not trying to grow two X year over year, you don't need to, to kind of sustain the lifestyle that you want and everything. Then that's a completely fine business. I guess to, to common pitfalls is back to kind of th this ties into that question is like, you've got to make sure that you're on the same page with your investors. Like for us, if we invest in a company, like we're kind of underwriting this to be a, you know, tens of millions of dollar company in the next couple of years and to eventually exit it and make a great return for our investors. And so we're not looking to invest in a company that's trying to grow 10% a year and get to cash flow positivity and kind of stay at that same kind of level playing or, or stay flat. We're expecting you to like, you know, not uneducatedly target and aggressively grow, but like, you know, intelligently, aggressively try and grow your company. And so that'll be a, a different for, for a lot of companies is it doesn't make sense to, to raise capital because you're not necessarily like trying to target all these different things. And, and, you know, it, it can be a great opportunity and just have a couple million dollar business. And maybe there's just not a big enough market that you can really capture with, with the product or solution that you have. Like, you know, a lot of companies it's yeah. Like take your company, for instance, it's, you know, it's probably completely fine to, to build a good business here. And there's similar businesses in other cities and, you know, similar businesses in the same city. And, you know, it doesn't make sense to, to raise a bunch of money because there's just the problems already being solved in certain ways by other folks. And so it's, you know, you can't necessarily see building a, a, a massive business out of this. And so then it doesn't make sense to raise capital. And then you own hundred percent of it, or you own, you know, you and your founders own hundred percent of it. And so y'all get to decide all the di different directions for the company with once you bring on additional capital, you have more people around the table that own some of the company that are going to hopefully for better, try and steer the ship, but it's also not your ship alone to steer. I appreciate you saying that. It's really interesting. Thank you for uh, enlightening me. Um, so I always like to wrap up with a few rapid fire questions is what I call them. And they're rapid fire in the sense that they're not necessarily like sequentially ordered. Like I, they're not leading into each other. They're just things at the outside of this conversation that I was curious about that we didn't get to. Okay. So first thing is, and I asked this to almost everyone is like, who are your like go-to gurus in your space or outside of your space in business in general, um, podcasts, books, whatever it is, like what, what authors and those people have been influential for you? Yeah. Um, Twitter is super good at kind of keeping up with the, uh, I feel like the only people on Twitter these days are like politicians and, and venture capitalists. Um, but that's a good way of, you know, following the people that you admire and your role models and, um, you know, seeing what interesting things that they're reading or, or they're, you know, they're talking about and spending their time. And so, I mean, I'd suggest like following like Bill Gurley is somebody that I look for, look up to in the, the venture capital community. And so I follow him in terms of keeping myself informed. I mean, I think you, you know, in this role, you need to be very well informed on what's happening in the market and, and just, you know, within your own portfolio companies, what does the competitive landscape look like and how is that evolving? And just as you're looking at companies, the same thing. And so I try and like every day, there's three different newsletters that I'll read each morning that help me kind of prep for the day. You know, Axios has this one called ProRata, which is very similar to Fortune has term sheet. Fortune also has one called data sheet and one called CEO daily. 
And those are great at just staying informed, make sure that I'm on top of what's happening um, in the world. And it kind of summarizes what happened the day before and, and what should happen that day. In terms of other podcasts, A16Z does a really good one at just a bunch of different um, tech trends that are happening. And so I, I listen to that one uh, frequently. So kind of between those, those are like the things that I'll do routinely um, to try and stay informed and to, to stay on top of the ball. And then there's other things, you know, there's like books that, that'll help founders like Venture Deals, for instance, is a great book for, for founders to kind of understand the different dynamics of, of term sheets. But yeah, I'd say it's, you know, kind of get into a routine for anybody just, you know, especially as you're trying to be an investor or anything, but get in a routine of just keeping yourself informed. And so that's what those newsletters are great for me. Do you have any innovations in either like technology or type of business model or anything like that, that you're really excited about? You're seeing as a trend popping up or, or one that you think will pop up that you're either looking to invest in or you're just closely watching? Yeah, you know, I spent a lot of time recently in, in uh, just looking at, at companies that are in the gaming space. And I think that there's just a ton that can happen to better monetize the viewers that are, you know, on like the amount of Twitch viewership and concurrent viewers is doubling every two years. And so there's a ton of attention that are going to, towards these platforms. So it's going to be really interesting to see how these viewers are monetized in different ways and and really it's like now a lot of, you know, sports and everything and shows and stuff, everybody's watching at home. You're not really going to the, to the stadiums right now. And, you know, it's partly because they're closed or the super minimal capacity. And so it'll be interesting to see how teams and, and all these dollars that were spent for in stadium revenue generation, how that's going to be geared uh, for trying to reach folks in different ways. Um, so that's kind of a product of the pandemic. So that's one area. I mean, I could talk about a couple of our, uh, one of our portfolio companies was doing something super interesting, which was a space that, you know, was absolutely taken off, but Aventador, which was just acquired by Cloudera, um, they're in the uh, streaming data infrastructure. And so the traditional ways of, you know, it's like you're always kind of curious on like how do advertisers know exactly what to target me with and, and you know, uh, at times it can be scary on how accurate some of that stuff is but a lot of the data that's collected about you usually it's it's stored and then it's analyzed but because it goes first to a storage and then to being analyzed there's a little bit of a timing difference on like okay we know this about mason but this is maybe a week or two late after the event happened and so more and more folks are trying to analyze data in real time and you can think about companies that are doing that successfully with like Uber on knowing surge pricing and knowing exactly where all the cars are mm -hmm. given time. And so Aventador was really democratizing that full, like Uber is able to do it by putting a ton of resources into these teams and spending a ton of money to build these teams, to be able to do this stuff. And Aventador is a platform that democratizes allowing other companies that don't nearly have the scale or resources to analyze their data in real time. So you know, that's a trend that, that you're still going to see, you know, it's going to, it's freaky and it's going to get freakier with just companies and everything being able to target you in quicker and quicker ways. Awesome. That's super cool. Uh, so last question, why did you choose to go the investment route rather than founding your own company? You clearly kind of, you clearly have the mind to, you know, be an entrepreneur, but you chose to do something else. What, uh, what inspired that? You know, maybe never say never, but, uh, 
the investing side of things is super exciting because you get to work with several different incredible companies. And I mean, I've always kind of been, um, you know, you got to kind of have like a, a gambler side of you, I feel like to like this business. And that's always, you know, I <laughs> kind of enjoyed that side of things. And, and what this job is, is, you know, you're really analyzing companies and trying to, trying to pick really good ones. And then, you know, there's a ton of work that's involved to really help those companies succeed. But I like the opportunity at getting to look at, you know, several different companies and, and really help several different companies grow. Um, so it's probably the diversity aspect that's really interesting. And then the other side that's just super interesting about it is like, because, so we are sector agnostic, you know, we only invest in Texas companies, but we'll invest in companies, um, you know, there'll be tech companies, but they could be across legal software or real estate or HR, you know, kind of across the, the, categorical spectrum there. And by doing so, I mean, it's, it's a really interesting job because I, I stay informed and I got to make sure that I'm educated in these spaces. And so you, you get to be really informed and the job makes you that way, but just on a ton of different categories versus if you're a founder, you're going to absolutely know a ton about one particular space or, you know, maybe um, one space a lot better than others. And so I think it's the diversity aspect that I really like about the investment side of things. Mason, thank you so much. Where can people find you if they want to you know, follow you or keep up with uh, what you're up to? Yeah, uh, Twitter's a, a good one. And then my newsletter is on there as well. So what is it? It's Mason underscore Rathy. So M-A-S-O-N underscore R-A-T-H-E. You can go on there and you can, um, on my profile, there's a link to follow my newsletter and and. So I think that that's a one that everybody in, in Austin should sign up for if you're just trying to keep on the market. Um, and so, yeah, that's a good way to, to keep up with me and then send me a message. If anybody's raising, raising funds, you're, you're based in, in Texas, um, you know, love the chat. So shoot me a message and, and we, can, uh, we can catch up. Awesome. I also made a, a really easy URL for you too. If you want to sign up for Mason's newsletter, it's at tinyurl.com slash Mason's newsletter. So you should be able to get to that and sign up uh, to, his, to his free newsletter as well. Mason, thanks again. It was really fun uh, interviewing you and uh, hope everyone enjoyed. Thanks a lot, Max. Take care.